This is Roots and Stems, an indigenous language podcast brought to you by Sea Alaska Heritage. Roots and Stems is where we dig in and explore ways to support and join language revitalization efforts. Lindsay Hinudi Kya'an. My name is Lindsay, and I will be hosting this episode of Roots and Stems. In this episode, I interview Patrick Werito. Patrick is Dene, also known as Navajo, and from New Mexico. To start off, I asked Patrick how Dene would introduce themselves. What I would say is Yat E, which means uh, good morning or hello. Yat E, She Ya, my name is uh, Patrick Werito. Um, that's my mom's clan. is my dad's clan. My maternal grandfather. And those are my paternal grandfather clan. So traditionally, that's how we would introduce ourselves. Our mother's clan, our father's clan, our paternal grandfather and our maternal grandfather. Then to say something like, um, if you're talking to some, uh, doing a, a talk or a speech presentation, you would say, <laughs> means uh, to, to everybody in, in the four directions, not just the people you're talking to. So everybody out there that's, that can hear, and that includes, uh, you know, our, our uh, holy people or our creator, whatever, you know, so that's how we do it. We in Southeast have similar ways of introducing ourselves through our mothers, fathers, grandmothers, and grandfathers' clans. It was amazing to see the similarities in our introductions. I've heard that Athabascan and Diné people are related from a few Athabascan friends, so I wanted to ask Patrick if he'd heard anything similar from his tribe. Some of the things that I've, that I've heard back home among our elders is uh, some talk about that where people would say, in, in, in through the oral history, uh, there was a group or a band at some point in time, in, time, in history, I guess, where uh, for whatever reason, they were sort of like exile, told to, to, to go somewhere or get removed themselves from the main group of, of, of people. And in doing so, they were told that you will travel north and you will cross four rivers. You know, of course, in, in indigenous people, there's always four things, right? Four, whatever. Four rivers, and that's where you're going to make your home. So when they look at, at, at our, our stories, where we're from, there's the San Juan River, there's the Colorado River, then there's the um, Snake River, and then the river up here, down by Washington. Columbia River? Columbia River. Okay. Then, so that was four rivers. Oh, okay. So that's where the, supposedly that's where the, the people move or migrated. And so it was interesting uh, to hear that, whether that's, uh, again, you know, a lot of oral stories, it's, it depends on who you hear it from, and there's always disagreement on stuff like that. Oh, that's not how it is, whatever. Mm-hmm. But that's what I've heard. The other thing I've also heard, too, is that... Um, Somewhere back in time, there were some people that came up to, I believe it's either in Canada somewhere, maybe in the Northwest somewhere, they were having a, 
uh, some type of a conference or get together, people were talking and uh, they had some Athabascan speak people from up this area that went down there. And supposedly, I, I wasn't there, but people were saying that uh, they engaged in the conversation in their own language and they were they they actually understood each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. I've heard some similar. Yeah, like, and so yeah, and so they they, yeah. they so like for me, if I go down to Mex- uh, Mescalero, Apache, uh, I can understand you know pretty much what they're talking about if, if I listen closely yeah. enough. Um, so yeah, I, I I've heard that I you know that's for me it's like wow it's that's interesting how languages and people are so. It was interesting to hear his perspective on the relationship between the Diné and the Athabascan. The languages of both tribes have similarities, but the stories on how they were related differ between each region. Patrick then talked about his experience in indigenous language revitalization in New Mexico. Well, right now I work for uh, Dual Language Education in New Mexico. It's a nonprofit organization, and we go and support schools that are thinking about dual language as an option, or in, in, in this case, when it comes to indigenous languages, it's um, helping them with their language program. And so I think um, for me, uh, before coming to dual language education, I used to work for the state, a state government, right, state government. And then I worked for a school district. And of course, when you're on sort of like on that side of the fence, you are, um, sort of a limit, limited in terms of how you're supporting uh, indigenous education or language programs. Because a lot of it is, is coming from the state mandates. So they'll say, like a state mandate might be, we're, we're here to increase academic achievement in reading and math. And so here's money to school districts to, to help students with their math skills and their reading skills and, and blah, blah, blah. And so... That, in a sense, is, is basically a lot of my experience was coming from the state side and wearing sort of what I, what I used to say is I, I wore that state seal because I had to defend that because I worked for it. And then at, at the same time, when you go work for the district, the same thing, you, you, you support, you work for the district, you support the district, you, um, and so on, and advocate for what, what initiatives that they have. So... Now that I work for Dual Language Education in Mexico, it's a nonprofit. So I, it took me a while to get out of that uh, habit of thinking twice of what I need to say. But now I think I can say what's in my heart. Uh, for example, like uh, I would say, before I would say, well, you know, schools are, are, are held accountable by their test scores. So uh, that's priority here. So but how can we support our, 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 our indigenous people, our students, in terms of their language? So I always put them second, the district initiative first. But now I'm able to say that's not right. That's, 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 we need to raise the level of, of equity for our, our indigenous language and academic language because we want both for, for, for our children. We want them to be successful in, in this arena, but as well to be successful in this community locally we want them to be successful but globally they need this as well so together you know we want them to be together and so now i think um coming from that side now i think that's something that is is different for me um and then the other thing is uh 
I guess for indigenous language revitalization and, and I, I thought long and hard about that. And a couple of things come to mind is that indigenous communities, we've never faced this before. We've never faced in our history of our long history where we are talking about our language and concerned about our language. Go back maybe 50 years or 100 years ago, everybody spoke the language. It wasn't a concern. But now, you know, the, uh, there's languages that die out every year, every, you know, every year in, in the world. And so that's a concern. Uh, so we've never really faced this. And we really don't know what the approach is. We really don't know what, what we need to do in terms of how, how do we stop the language shift and the language loss and then turn back and start to produce speakers, to start having young people be using the language as a first language, not their community language, be a second language. And I, and I think that's something that's, that we don't understand, and so we, we haven't been faced with that. As we were growing up as speakers, English was our second language, our, our, our heritage language, our first language. But today, it's, it's reversed. English is their first language and their heritage language is their second language. And so those type of thinking, we, we like, wait a minute, what's going on here? So for me, I, a lot of those things started to come to surface in my own thinking, and I said, wow, you know, this, this is uh, something that I think, uh, as a speaker, I have an obligation, I think, to pass on the language to my children and my grandchildren, not just my children, but my, my grandchildren's children. That's how far I have to think about it. And so, you know, a lot of people will say, well, we speak, the, we still speak the language. No, it's not about you. It's how do you give the language to your grandchildren's children? That's how far you have to think about it. And a lot of young people today were like, well, what is it? I'm not even ready to get married. I don't even have kids, but that's not, that's not what it is. You know, things don't stay the same. So there's a lot to it that made me think about it. So. Patrick's experience brought up the interesting dynamic between indigenous and Western forms of education. So I asked how the two forms of teaching can come into conflict with each other, or at least place value on different aspects of education. I, I think uh, what we're beginning to see in, in our work is that um, we're, be we're as, as language teachers, we as, as people in, in, the, in the front lines in terms of teaching the language, we have to kind of sort of uh, stop and pause for a moment and ask the question, um, are we teaching our language the way we learn English, right? So in other words, uh, like in English, like ang English would be uh, like, uh, there's, there's sentence structures, there's, it's noun-based, so that for our language, the net language, we would say, uh, the net language is verb-based. You know, it's a lot of it is is things of action. Shana ashana ka, shana Turn on the light. And, and noun is is not is you know those those will come in time. So in English, it's, it's like bottle, uh, uh, table, chairs. Those are all noun-based. And, and I think we, we start to, to do that. We start to teach our language like the way English, we think English is. And we, we even go as far as doing alphabet sounds. 
like you have ah, b, s, right, those sounds. And and in our, I know in our, that's what they do. There's a ch sound, there's a t sound, there's a t sound. They're like, we have all these sounds. I'm like, wait a minute. That's not how we learned it, right? That's that's how English is taught. So I think that's something that we have to pause and ask the question, um, are we doing that? And, 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 if, and if we are doing that, then well, well, or well, the language learner learn the language, because um, that, that's something to I don't know, but that's something to think about. The other thing I think is um, uh, what education does with Western education is it's all student focus, and they'll say that it's all about the student, and they'll say we're we're we're, we're approaching students as a whole child, whole child concept. We want to teach them. Uh, physically, mentally, spiritually, psychologically, blah, 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 the whole child concept and that development piece. But in, from an indigenous perspective, what they would say is, wait a minute, for us, education is not just the child. For us, education is, is the child, the parent, and the grandparent. It's intergenerational. So how do we rethink and approach on how we are talking about education? So, and so, so let's look at language. So take that concept and look at language. So all we're doing in a lot of our language program at schools is we're just still focused on the child. But what if we were to say, when we look at our language program, it has to encompass these three generations, the child, the parent, and the grandparent. You know, that to us is indigenous education because in our community, they, they, all of them play a role and they all contribute to the learning and, and the teaching process. And so those are some things that I think, and there's a number of other things that come up. Uh, the other piece I know that comes up is um, people would say, uh, you're, you're, um, you speak your language, right? I say, yeah, you're a teacher, right? Yes, okay, you'll be our language teacher. Which is good, I guess, uh, but again, we, we need to pause and say, just because you speak the language fluently, that doesn't necessarily mean you're an effective teacher, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's where uh, we, we start to have conversation with language teachers to say, wait a minute, what, what do you mean by that? Well, what I'm saying is sometimes when you teach the language, when you're in your attempt to teach the language, you're, you're delivering the instruction of language the way you understand the language, not the way the learner is. And so, uh, so for example, I would hear teachers talking to students, you know, the language being real fluent and real, a little bit faster than, you know, just like they were talking to uh, someone who understood the language. But these, these kiddos don't understand it. So you, I would say to kind of slow down the speech a little bit and then be repetitive and focus on a couple of vocabulary words. And, and, and slowly you build the vocabulary, you spill the words for them, you build them, and you start to build on those things. Rather than just, you know, going 100 miles an hour in the language and boom, you know, and the kids are like, wait a minute, you know. And so those, those little things like that we start to talk about and staying in the language. When you want to teach a language, you have to stay in the language. And we're accustomed to doing what we call code switching. We talk in both English and in our language, we go back and forth. But uh, staying in the language, teaching in the language, takes a lot.
takes a lot out of teachers because it's, it's a challenge in itself to to try to think in the language, to stay in the language, to stay, to keep talking in the language over an extended time. And it takes practice, though. It takes practice. Patrick explained a little bit more about his work with dual language in New Mexico. Well, to me, uh, uh, the way I look at dual language education is, is sort of like an umbrella, right? Dual language, the, the idea and the concept to me is like an umbrella, but within dual language, you have different approaches. So for example, you might, depending on your students, if your students are monolingual speakers, let's say if they're monolingual speakers, they only speak one language, let's say they speak the community language, that will be a one-way immersion, right? So let's say they all speak Tlingit, uh, am I saying that right, Tlingit? Mm -hmm. Then it will be a one-way immersion. So you're getting them to learn English to learn academic English, but you also teach the other language as well. Then let's say you have an equal number of speakers. You have uh, some students that speak Tlingit and some that do not, and then it's a two-way immersion, right? Two-way immersion. Then you might have students that do not speak Tlingit. They're all English speakers, and that's a one-way immersion, right? So it depends on the students and, and how you do it. Then, of course, the other piece under the umbrella is, is uh, language revitalization. So in there, uh, you have to ask the question, um, what, what is the purpose of teaching the language? If it's to produce speakers, then um, that's going to be different than teaching the content or the concept of teaching math. So in other words, they will say, uh, we're going to teach math through the language. Okay. That's good if you want to teach the, the, let's say, the concept of geometry through the language. Okay, good. Is, is with the understanding that do the students speak the language? Mm -hmm. He could do that. And does the teacher speak the language fluently? And if the teacher is a fluent speaker and the, and the students speak somewhat the language and understand the language, you might teach the concept of geometry through the language. So there's, there's all these conversations that I think teachers and community people need to have. Like, you know, are we ready to do that? Are we capable to do that? Is that what we should be doing? Or should we be producing speakers so that grandma and grandpa can have a conversation with their grandchildren? That's a different, that's a different approach. That's a different purpose. And so, uh, but that's the community to decide. Not, that's not for us to decide. All we do is come in here and just ask, ask these critical questions and leave it up to the community to say, we're here to support you. There's no right or wrong answer to it, but it's your narrative, meaning this is your story, this is your language, this is your community. You know, what, what is it that you want? What are the expectations for your children and your grandchildren and their grandchildren and so on? So. Help, we're going to help you facilitate those conversations and help you start moving in those directions because there's nobody out there that's going to know more about your language than you. Patrick talked about some of the challenges indigenous communities face when trying to revitalize their language. I think, uh, of course, the reason why our language is shifting and language loss is because of the encroachment of, of, of external encroachment like colonization, right? and how English has become so immersed in our communities. Everywhere, you know, we're immersed in English. 
and through through generation uh, perceptions have changed so for example earlier this morning our conversation was uh, parents were saying that when when I went to school uh, there was no language class good that was that was at that time it was good because students were speaking the language there wasn't a need for language class but the challenge that they faced was that you can't speak your language. You have to learn English. Mm-hmm. Right? That, that's a different challenge that they face. And so now, a couple, couple, maybe a generation or two later, now we have language programs and language class because there's no speakers because our young children are not learning the language. And so one of the challenges, I guess, is uh, there's, there's a couple and there's probably more out there, but one of the things is how do you help community people, particularly indigenous people, rethink and, and, and do a paradigm shift in terms of thinking about their language, right? And so uh, a question might be, how is your, how is your language structured? Is it, is it, is it, how is it different from English? How is it different from other languages? And so on. And very simple conversation on that. And because, you know, nobody has asked us that question before. And the other thing is um, language equity. So in other words, do people view English as a language of power? And if so, of, of power and status? And then if so, how, how do they view their, their community language? So in other words, the question might be, if you speak English, how are you perceive in your community? Well, he's he's he or she is successful, educated, blah blah blah. Okay, what if you speak your language? How are you perceived, and so on? And so, I guess the challenge is 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 really how people are thinking about education, how people are thinking about their language, how people are how the, through intergenerational changes. How has that affected their language and how has that affected their perceptions in their community? And because we talk about cultural identity and being proud of who you are. Yeah, that's good. But the question is, do you really know what that means? What does it mean to be proud to be who you are? Do you really, have you really had that conversation? Well, all I know is I'm brown skin and I look different. Well, what, you know, and so there, those kind of things, I think, is because right now, especially our young kiddos, they're, um, the media and, and all that they're immersed in, they're trying to be somebody they're not, right? And if we, if we as parents and the older generation, if we're not clear on what expectations that we want for them, they will never know. They will never know what they're trying to be. So mm-hmm. there, there's a lot more to that, but I think that's something that, is, is, I guess the challenge is doing a cultural change. That's the biggest one because anybody can do structural change. And what I mean by that is we can say, oh, let's just have an immersion program here. Let's just put uh, uh, parents that want their children to learn um, their community language. They can bring their, their children. That's, that's a structural change, you know, if, if parents want to do that. But as a cultural change, you know, how, how do you change a community and how they think about their language and their way of life? 
That's different. That's, mm -hmm. that's a cultural change, and that's probably one of the biggest challenges. I asked Patrick if he had any success in changing the culture, what he called a paradigm shift. It's, it's slow progress. It, it's, it's, uh, it's a process. It's, it's just, just thinking about tribal communities since of so many years we've, we've been in this situation where you know, we, we, there's, a, there's policies that were actually in place to assimilate and acculturate us into mainstream America, right? And, 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 and to, to a certain degree, I guess that has been successful when they purposely place schools in communities and to, to only teach English and, and so on. So that's intergenerational. So the, the work that we're talking about, the, the, the culture change that needs to happen, is, is undoing those years of, of, of colonization and trauma. And it's not something that's just gonna happen like you turn on a light switch. You know, you come here, we talk about language, you know, boom, it's not gonna like people say, oh, I see the light, I, I know I'm gonna be whatever. It, it takes time because it's, it's asking people to do something that's out of their comfort zone. And oddly to say, it's like it's asking people to be in them, to be indigenous. And for some of us, that, that could mean this is not comfortable. <laughs> I'd rather go watch a movie, you know, go, mm -hmm. you know, down the store and buy some groceries, whatever, and, and, and do something like garden, plant, whatever, whatever, whatever we do, you know, whatever, whatever we do, or learn about my language. Oh, that's going to take time, you know. Uh, and I don't have time to learn my language, but I have time to go watch a movie, the new Star mm -hmm. Wars, you know. Yeah. So it's that comfort zone, and, and so so it takes time. Um, but we we do have a couple of schools that I think are beginning to think about that change, and and it's 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 not it's not it's very slow because uh, schools. If you really think about it, at least in, back in, in New Mexico, you have schools, you have people that are from the community that work in the schools. And so uh, that cultural change has to be done in, from a community perspective. And that includes those people that work at the school. So I think in that, in that sense, it's, there's a little bit of progress, uh, but any progress in, in the right direction is good. So. I told Patrick about the low number of speakers of our indigenous languages of Southeast Alaska. Even, even uh, our tribe, like the Navajo Nation, the 2010, 2010 census data um, showed that about 56% of homes still use the, the Dene language. Now, at, back in 1980, when the census was done, 94% of homes use the Navajo language. Then every 10 years, the census is done, 80, 90, 2000, to 2010. It's, it's, it went from 90-something percent to 50%. So in, in, in a couple of decades, probably like in two generations, because one generation is about 25, right? So in a couple of decades, it went from 90 to 50. And if the trend, if the data statistically, uh, if we don't do anything by 2040, 
instead of having 4% use English, it will be 4% of homes that use the net. That will be a language shift. And, 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 and so that type of data that we just sort of like project those data and based on numbers and, and whatever, we show that to community people and that, that's like an eye opener. So basically what we're trying to get people to think is uh, as a community people, as people who are speakers, especially those that are speakers, how do we level, how do we, re, do we raise the level of urgency? Yeah. The state of urgency, you know, we, we shouldn't wait for uh, the state of Alaska or the, the federal government to tell us that our language is dying. So therefore you need to, you need to do something about it. We should already be doing it, right? And so I think that's something that, that, that we as indigenous people just it sometimes, again, that's that whole colonization piece where we're expecting somebody else to tell us that something's wrong with us. But I think we can, we can do that ourselves. I asked Patrick how we can get young people motivated to learn their indigenous language. I think uh, for, for young people, I, I think, uh, I think that's, that the question has been asked before is how do we get our young people to be motivated to learn the language? To me, I, I, I think the young people uh, already have the desire and already have the, the motivation to learn the language because they know in their mind that if I speak my language, I'm, I'm, I'm unique. I'm, I'm a unique person. I'm not a Native American or I'm not a tribal member. I'm um, or I'm, you know, whatever, whatever the, the name they give themselves, I'm, I'm that. And so I, I think young people are, 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 have that desire and have that motivation. I, I think what it is is that it's making the time and really being very clear on what the expectation we as as parents as as speakers what we need to say to our young people is to if you speak the language and just this is the reason this is the role this is how you're going to use it so for example like uh, my, my my children would say dad why do you why do you get up in the morning to pray what are you doing out there? I said, I go out and I pray. That's, that's our way. We go and give offering to the new day that's coming. And we ask for good rewards, good opportunities that are coming. We, we, we want good blessing. That's what I'm praying for. And they said, oh, okay, I didn't know that. And so can I, can I listen in? Sure. They come out, stand there, and i talking in my language. And they look at afterwards. What, what were you saying? I said, this is why I want you to learn Navajo, because the, the, the holy people out there, if you speak to them in English, they might not understand you. But if you speak to them in Navajo, they'll understand you because it's, the, it's them that gift us, it's, it's them that gave us the language. They didn't give us English, they gave us Navajo. Oh, so I think that you know, if, if little things like that, if we're clear about in terms of expectation, this is the reason, this is how you're going to use your language. Because all students need to know, or young people need to know is, well, if I'm going to learn it, how am I going to use it? That's, once we make it very clear for them, I think they'll, 
the motivation is there, I think they will say, oh, okay, now there's a reason for me to learn it. That's, that's the bottom line. How ah, uh, thank you, Patrick, for joining me in this episode of Roots and Stems. We are grateful you came up to Juno to talk with us, and it was wonderful to hear about the language revitalization efforts happening with the Diné in New Mexico. Jahau'a, thank you very much for listening to this episode of Roots and Stems. How stunks King Sung. I will see you again. Roots and Stems is sponsored by Sea Alaska Heritage. Artwork for this podcast is by Lingit artist Allison Bremner. The music is a Tsimshian song from Metlachatla, composed by Chuk Tugnitza Skik. Gavin Hudson, Oechsen, for granting us permission to use the Askin Dim Lip Algagan for this podcast. Please visit sealaskaheritage.org for more information on this podcast and other programs. Gemilchish Ha'at Oechsen.